from the Partnership for Public Service. This is Profiles in Public Service, a podcast that tells the stories of the public servants responsible for our government's most significant achievements. I'm Lauren DeYoung Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein Kircher. Incoming presidents are responsible for making more than 4,000 political appointments, overseeing a budget of nearly $4 trillion and managing a huge organization that employs more than 2 million federal employees and more than 2 million military and reserve forces. Today, we're going to hear from two dedicated and innovative career federal leaders who have helped prepare the government for two pivotal presidential transitions. First, we spoke with Gail Loveless. Gail played a central role in the 2008 transition from President George W. Bush to President Barack Obama. As the Director of Presidential Transition at the General Services Administration, or GSA, she saw an opportunity to do more to help federal agencies prepare for a transfer of power. Her work helped create what many consider the gold standard of presidential transitions. Gail, welcome to Profiles in Public Service. So, Gail, we have heard that you've been called the godmother of the presidential transition, which is just fabulous. How did you get this nickname and what does it mean to you? Well, let me start by saying thank you all for having me today. It's it's an honor to, to be able to share some things that happened in the past. So it's sort of interesting how I got that name, the godmother. Um Somewhere in the middle of the transition period, a local news reporter came to my office to do an interview. And I showed him, along with a couple of my team members, all the different things we were doing. And he sat there the whole time with his mouth open, literally. And at the end of the session, he says, I think you're the godmother. And the next thing I know, when he put it on the air, he actually called me the godmother of transition, which was really sort of interesting. And it sort of stuck. You know, when you're in the middle of doing this kind of work, you're focused on the work. You're not focused on what other people see that you're doing. So it really, it put a smile on my face that he said that. And, and as you said, people don't know what the work is that you're doing. And so to, you know, from the outside, we know, okay, the pr- president is elected. It's either, you know, a second term or we have the outgoing and the incoming, not knowing that there's all of this work behind the scenes. And so, you know, for you in, in the 2008, Eight transition. Give us a sense of what was that about? Oh, where do you start? You know, GSA, because of the Presidential Transition Act of 1963, has, has played a unique role in transitions since then. And when I started in GSA in the late 70s, um, I was able to sort of be on a team doing little pieces of transition. And as a political science major in school, I was just fascinated by the whole process. And so I saw different aspects of transition going back to Carter and Reagan and it just all the former presidents. So it's it's just sort of interesting being involved in that. So when I got this opportunity to, uh, to lead the effort at GSA, what an amazing time it was. If, if you will recall, at that point in time, President Bush was in office, and it was the first transition since 
And President Bush told his team at the White House that he wanted this to be the best transition ever. And the team of people that he had working on transition at the White House was amazing. And so it just wasn't the words that he was saying. He literally put his top people in charge of transition from the White House perspective. And so when I was named as head of transition at GSA, which is which is a tremendous honor for me, we hooked up with the White House and we just we just ran from there and just the opportunity. I mean, we knew there was going to be a transition because Bush at that point in time was a second term president. Some transitions, you don't know if the incumbent president is going to, you know, be elected again, or if you're going to have someone new. So we knew there was going to be a change. So that made it a little bit easier to get some things done. But, you know, I followed President Bush's lead. He wanted it to be the best transition ever. And my acting administrator at GSA, who's the head of GSA at the time, he said, Gail, go for it. (laughs) And I thought, okay, we're going for it. So really interesting at GSA, though, and and stop me if you need to stop me to ask more questions, but I'll just sort of keep talking. When I read the various pieces of legislation related to transition, I realized that nobody was really in charge. That's daunting. (laughs) Exactly. So you have the Bush White House there. And after we went through some periods of time, you know, we came down to Obama running against McCain. And so working with all those different teams, just absolutely tremendous. And the fact that I realized that nobody was in charge, it just opened a lot of possibilities of what we could do during transition. Gail, that, uh, that's such a, both a terrifying, but also to your point, opportunistic moment there um, that now Presidential Transition Act, which is the legislation that provides all kinds of guidance on transitions, requires that a senior GSA career executive coordinate that transition. Um, And one of the major things that you did in identifying this gap was seeing that there's additional support that was needed to be provided to agencies during the presidential transition and additional support that GSA could help provide. So what was it that inspired you to leap into that gap in opportunity and, and to make some of those changes to the support that agencies had during transition? What, and what was the need that you saw there? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. In, in years before 2008 inside GSA, the person who was tip or persons that were typically named or always named to lead up transition and take out, you know, carry out the role that GSA was responsible for always came from our public building service. And so in the public building service, I mean, they're involved in, in space. And so they were really focused on the technical aspects of what's in the Presidential Act of 1963, which is basically providing space and computers, whenever computers came in to be, they weren't always, you know, the the logistical things that were needed to ensure a smooth transition. And so as I put my teams together for working on the incoming administration, and we'll talk about the other two teams I had as well, um, 
I realized that I had the best people possible to really focus on the space and the computers and the paper clips and everything, you know, all the security things that were needed. And I realized that who was it that was helping to pull agencies together? And, and maybe some of that came when I started going out, talking to different groups about GSA's role in transition, because I don't know that most people across government even knew what GSA's role. So I started going to the Chico Council, which I was a member of. I went to the CFO Council and the CIO. So I, those are the count the groups I met first. I went to the Small Agency Council and listening to the kinds of questions that I was getting from people in those various meetings, I realized that agencies needed help too. Because at the end of the day, every agency has to prepare for a transition within their agency, the current political people leaving and new political people coming in and all that goes on the scenes behind that. And so I really started talking with agencies about the things that they could do to prepare and having them share ideas with each other. And when I took it to the White House and told them that that's what I was doing, and it took it to my boss, of course, they said, Gail, let's, let's just do it. And the White House stepped in and helped me with some of the briefings. And I really feel like agencies appreciated some guidance and help. I mean, each agency is very different in how they handle things, but learning from each other and learning what was possible because in my view, the sky was the limit. You know, we could, we could do what whatever was needed to do. And, and that's really what we did. And I have to tell you, not only were my teams in GSA phenomenal, and so was the White House, but agencies were too. As I started working on various other aspects of transition, especially the inaugural, there were times where I really needed help from different agencies, particularly, as I recall, along the parade route for the inaugural parade. And, you know, every agency I called and when I needed help, they stepped up. And, and it, it, was, it was an amazing time. You know, the stars were just in alignment. I felt like I had great people to work with across government. So, Gail, I was actually in one of those agencies as a contractor during the Bush to Obama transition, and I I witnessed this from the let's prepare all the materials for the incoming, and it was just very fascinating. And so to hear that this all originated with you, I'm really excited <laughs> right now to be able to connect those dots. And we'd also love to know, you know, so much has happened since 2008. So how do you see that presidential transitions have changed since then? Well, you, you know, er, like I said a few minutes ago, every transition is different. Uh, even the ones before 2008, every single one is different because it really depends on who's in charge, who's currently in the White House. It depends on who's running for office. It depends on whether the current president is gonna is running again. So every every transition is different. Think back to 2000 when you had Gore and Bush running and we had some issues with hanging chads. And for a long time, we didn't even know who the president was going to be, it ended up going to the Supreme Court. So I, I use that as an example, is that every transition is very different. And so since 
2008. Um, and, you know, one of the nice things about 2008, it wasn't until later that I figured we must have done some things right because there was legislation written that captured what we did during 2008, which to me is just an absolutely high honor that they would take what we did and put it in legislation. Yeah. But then yeah, you go to making two, your mark. Yeah. You know, but again, when you're in the middle of it, you don't think about it like that. <laughs> right. Um, you're just doing your job. You, yeah. You're, you're doing, and it was 20, it was 24 seven. It was nonstop for two years because GSA starts prepping for transition even before we know who candidates are. So it's a, it's really a two, two and a half year process, but you even take 2012. Um, Romney came in and he was fat. His team was amazing. They even wrote a book, book about what they were doing related to transition. So, and then you go to 2016, you go to 2020, every single one is different. And I think each time we get a little bit better, or hopefully we get a little bit better at how we're managing transitions in the federal government. You know, for many years in GSA, we talked about transition being a very vulnerable period for our country because you're sort of in between presidents. Even though there's always a president on board after the election, if the incumbent isn't staying or isn't, you know, coming back, it's, um, you're just just in a, a weakened period where other countries could take advantage of that. And so we pay a lot of attention to to what's happening and in, in, in every every single transition is different. So again, I just hope, you know, we continue to grow and improve how we go about doing it because we really have to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us and make sure that we're doing what's needed to ensure a smooth transition. Gail, we have one more question for you. Um, uh, and I will also say with a big point of thanks that I was also working in the 2008 transition and at the Department of Defense and the the support that we had at that point at, in a really scary moment for transition. We were in the middle of two wars and there was a lot of change going on. It was, it, it was so welcome to be able to know that there was more guidance and more insight to be able to rely on in there. Um, but my, my question for you is uh, around people, around civil servants. One of the things that makes all of these transitions at these very vulnerable moments that you talked about possible is these thousands of career civil servants who are working at agencies, who are working at GSA and otherwise, and are able to be relied on by one administration to the next as they one turns off the lights and the other turns them back on. So in addition to directing transitions, you were also the chief human capital officer at GSA. And I wondered what advice would you give to young public servants or aspiring public servants about how to build a fulfilling career in government like like you've had? Well, let's back up for a minute. I preferred being called the chief people officer. Oh, all right. For some reason, I did I didn't like the words human capital, so I actually became the chief people officer at GSA even before the Chico Act was passed. So, I, I like to think about it as people, and I, it's something about the words human capital that rubbed me the wrong way, and it rubbed the administrator at the time the wrong way too. So he bought right into the chief people officer. Um, 
You know, it's, it's interesting you should ask that question. I currently mentor student athletes at the University of Maryland who have interests in federal service. Um, and, there's, and there's one young lady in particular that I'm mentoring, or actually the mentoring program is over, but she doesn't want to stop us having conversations. Um, I can't imagine why. That's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's just, she got to live through this this last transition with me and was fascinated the whole time. You know, government service is such a high calling in my view, and the government offers so many opportunities to people that I don't even know that most people in the world know what the government does. When you think about the people at NIH, for example, that were helping to create or develop this vaccine and what Dr. Fauci has done and others. I mean, when you think about some of the work we do, the Food and Drug Administration and all that they go through to approve these vaccines, the, the young lady that I'm mentoring at Maryland, she's going into a security agency, so secure that she can't even tell me where she's going. And just, <laughs> but, but, it, it, but listening to her and listening to the kinds of questions she had, and so she and I are sort of on a mission to engage other people at the University of Maryland to think about federal service. So, you know, it, it's such, there's, the sky's the limit and there's such great possibilities in terms of what you can do and, and what you can offer in service to our government and to our country. You know, I take the oath of office pretty seriously and, you know, I'm a political science major, so I'm a glutton for this, but you can do pretty much anything you want inside the government, you know, whatever your area of interest might be. There's such great opportunities. And, you know, I know a lot of people like going to the private sector because they may pay better. And, and you know what? And at the end of the day, that's fine, too, because clearly the government depends on private sector in, in a lot of areas. So it's 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 just a great opportunity to, to get into government service. And I encourage anyone who even thinks about it, at least try it out. And, you know, I never knew when I started in the government that I would end up leading presidential transition and going to the White House. Go, that was amazing. Going to the White House all the time, working with the Obama team and President Obama, working with the McCain team and, you know, that his whole team. Who, whoever knew that I'd end up doing anything like that? <laughs> Such great opportunities. Gail, I love how you put that, that you can do almost anything in government, but your point about the oath of office, but you can do so towards the end of supporting and defending the constitution and put yourself in the middle of stories that many people are watching and don't know you're a part of, or will, or you're behind the scenes in a big moment in history. Um, and there's so many thousands of public servants that do that all the time. So thank you um, for telling us part of your story today and for all that you did as you were supporting um, transitions and many other public servants over the last several years. Yes, Gail, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you all hosting me today. This this has been nice. And I've, I've only touched the surface. So there's so many more things to tell. But I, I appreciate being here today and having the opportunity to share a little bit about what we did back in 2008. Thank you.
Gail's leadership set the standard for future directors of presidential transition. Her innovations were later enacted into law through amendments to the Presidential Transition Act. Since 2008, GSA has had an expanded role as a liaison between transition teams and the federal government. Starting in 2012, GSA began providing more services to candidates before the election. Additionally, there is now a statutory requirement that GSA work with agencies on transition planning, filling the need Gail first identified and addressed. To learn more about how presidential transitions have changed and the most recent presidential transition, we spoke next with Mary Jaber. Mary has worked on two presidential transitions, first preparing for the 2016 Obama to Trump transition, and then overseeing the 2020 Trump to Biden transition as GSA's federal transition coordinator. In 2020, amid a deadly pandemic and facing prolonged uncertainty about the outcome of the election, Mary ensured dozens of agencies were fully prepared to brief the incoming administration, made sure that the president-elect Biden's transition team had access to federal funding and the ability to operate virtually, and provided outgoing services to then-President Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence. Mary, welcome to Profiles in Public Service. So Mary, as the GSA's Federal Transition Coordinator, you oversaw the first virtual presidential transition. And as hard as it was for us to imagine working over the last year from home under oftentimes chaotic and unreasonable circumstances, I honestly, I can't imagine going into a presidential transition as this was going on, as people were not able to access offices or primarily working on laptops and so on. What was it like preparing for a transition where almost everyone from the Biden team to the outgoing administration to career civil servants was working remotely and had maybe even never met each other in person. So, you know, um, strangely enough, um, that was kind of an aside. I think it was maybe a little bit of a focus when we started that we realized we were all going to be virtual. Um, When we were planning and planning for the space, you know, that was one of the the considerations that we took into play in terms of um, it wasn't going to change the location of the space. Um, we would just configure the space differently. So our, you know, we would have a preparation and plans and be able to be agile and adjust. So we had plan A, plan B, and, you know, very quickly our plan B uh, or the COVID uh, virtual became full on plan B. So we naturally pivoted within GSA for our support to um, reflect that. So basically it didn't change, um, like I said, the space. It didn't change the number of devices that we provided. It didn't change the platform. Um, it did change how we interacted with each other, but it, it seemed like we were all prepared for that. So it was, there was a little bit of concern, I would say, perhaps upfront, more that, you know, people were used to establishing relationships in person. So we worked extra hard as we were setting up the councils, um, the agency transition directors cha- council, um, you know, the different interactions that we have with the agencies and that we have with each other, that we made after extra effort to make sure that, you know, we established those relationships and establish those connections and had that awareness that we needed to work a little harder. Um, but I think we all reflected 
on the end within the GSA family, within our partner family, uh, the Biden transition team, the folks that we worked with on the White House, that, um, you know, we hadn't actually seen each other in person, but we all felt like we knew each other really well. And we all had managed to establish um, trust as well, because a key part of my job was being the trusted advisor and the trusted broker between the White House and the transition team. That actually, you you translated perfectly to my, my next question, which is, were there any elements of a virtual transition that actually worked better or maybe just worked differently than expected than previous in-person transitions? Were there any actually positive things that came out of this virtual process? I think it was probably more in- inclusive as opposed to exclusive because of the virtual platform. You didn't have to physically uh, be in a space, so you weren't limited by the confines of the size of the conference room that you may have had or the meeting room that may have been there. I know for uh, from our perspective uh, at GSA and the services that we provided, you know, we were able to widen the pool and, and actually had virtual folks from that were actually living and working somewhere other than Washington D.C. supporting the transition. And I believe as well that the uh, transition expanded. Um, during both pre-elect and post-elect, was able to expand the pool of folks who were able to participate. And, you know, you've probably heard them talk on other podcasts and other um, events that it allowed them to access talent that may not have been willing to come to Washington, D.C., but could still contribute. That's such a great point. I have colleagues who, who are now serving in government as appointees who worked on the transition, one of whom was in Germany and remains in Germany, is moving at a later date. Another's in Puerto Rico and elsewhere. And in different circumstances, I don't think they ever would have considered the possibility, but this opened this up for them. Um do you have, having had this experience where I think you had to experience many different kinds of environments and challenges working in this virtual world, um, do you have any advice for leaders uh, inside government and outside of government who are looking ahead to the future of where remote or hybrid work is the norm for many organizations as opposed to a one-off over the course of a year? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's become the norm for so many of us because at GSA, um, we've been and 100% telework um, a year and a half. So, you know, we went, I think, March or April um, into um, 100% telework and we're still on it. So we continue to work in that mode. I think the thing that you have to keep in mind, you know, as a leader, um, you know, initially I would say when we started under the telework um, emergency virtual aspect of it is, you know, the making sure that your folks are okay you know, the health and well-being of, of the people that work for you and work with you. Um, so figuring out that mechanism to do that that check-in. So normally you might stroll down the hall, you might, you know, have coffee, you might have lunch. So all those things that you normally do when you're in person, those can be done in a virtual environment. And I would say for my team and the folks that I work with, we probably saw each other more because every time we interacted we interacted in a video platform so that we would see each other. Um, in my other job as the Associate Administrator of the Office of Civil Rights, what we instituted was, you know, we had a small staff, about 25, 30 people, but every Monday it was, 
It started as a um, health and welfare check as everyone on camera so we can visually see that everyone's good, everyone's fine, you know, see your smiling face to it just became a regular thing that, you know, every Monday on for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, see everybody as well as that then became a hub to update folks. I think the other part is you have to think about it. You have to think about being inclusive. You have to think about, you have to treat your meetings like, okay, is this meant to be a meeting that you would normally be in person? Then you should be in person. So, and then you also have to think about how do you welcome new people? How do you establish relationships? How do you establish trust? All of those things that you do in person, you now had to figure out and translate those skills to a virtual environment. So Mary, I would love to know, um, you prepared the government for presidential transitions 2016, 2020. And last year on the Partnerships Podcast Transition Lab, you shared that you start planning for a transition two and a half years before a new president takes office. That's a really long time. So what is GSA's role in a presidential transition? And can you walk us through the different phases of this process that I don't think a lot of people know about. Sure. So uh, first, I just want to make one uh, correction. I began the transition in 2016. And um, in December, January of that year, um, I was moved over to become the regional commissioner of the National Capital Region at GSA uh, Public Building Service. And Tim Horn completed the transition. So he did an amazing job. So I don't want to steal any of his thunder because he was he was key to the success of the uh, 2016 um, transition and also provided a lot of great advice when I came to begin this transition from there. So um, having said all that, there's a lot of phases that happen within the for GSA. So GSA, in, in addition, provides a space and the services. So we start about two and a half years out locating a space to hold the transition, which includes both pre-elect and post-elect. So we prof- provide space for two potential candidates and need to have, we usually have a plan uh, B or C in the wings because the statute does a address if we would have a third party candidate. We never have, but you know, a couple of times we've uh, done a little deeper digging when we uh, thought that that could potentially be an option. So we get that space. And then we also have to have space ready for post-elect. So we don't go and typically rent out that space. We look within our inventory for space that's available on a short-term usage and that can be adapted for that short-term use. So that's one thing of getting the space ready. So that's what that that early on effort is. Then the statute requires that one year before an election that GSA stand up a um, transition directory. And that is stood up with our partners, um, Office of Government Ethics, NARA, OPM, And those three groups and us stand up an agency transition directory that's online and public facing. And we continue to update that. Then the next thing that that goes on is, you know, we're getting the space already. So, you know, the preparation of the space, the build out of the space, all the things that have to do with the space. We also have to start 
in May before an election, there's lots of things that are going on. So there is the requirement to identify the agency transition directors. So um, every agency has to identify a senior career official to manage and oversee the transition within their agency. We stand up an agency transition directors council, which is chaired by my, myself in the role as the federal transition coordinator and the deputy director for management at OMB. So that council is co-chaired and that gets stood up in May as well. Additionally, there is the White House Transition Coordinating Council, and that is um, managed and overseen uh, by the, the Office of the President. The Federal Transition Coordinator, um, in this case was myself, is the uh, career person on the um, White House Transition Coordinating Council. And the White House Transition Coordinating Council provides guidance through myself to the agency transition directors on the carrying out of the transition. And then the other thing in May, May is a very big month. Um, there is what is called the um, six month report. And so that is the report to Congress that um, I prepare and submit on behalf of the president on all the transition activities that are underway to prepare. So that, that's a lot of stuff that is going on that uh, requires cross-governmental interaction and a lot of activity within GSA in terms of getting the space ready. I'm also hearing you have a lot of customers in this process. So, it, you know, at first, you, when you say space and services for the candidates, you know, that to me jumps to mind, okay, that's your customer. But I'm also hearing, you know, you've got Congress, you've got the White House, you've got all the agencies. This is really, um, really all interconnected and very complex sounding. And I just, I also want to clarify, like for pieces like this transition directory, for example, this is something where, you know, both candidates teams may or may not have any knowledge of federal government operations. And so that if they had questions on ethics rules or hiring guidelines, is this where they would find points of contact for these sorts of topics? Yes. So the short answer is yes. Um, so it, and that's part of the reason of standing it up a year in advance of election. So when, you know, in November or whatever election day would be. So it's November of the um one year ahead of time. It's continually updated as well. So the services and the space is offered to the candidates. So, you know, in this case, if the president is running for re-election, then no services are provided in a pre-election platform for an existing president. So in this case, because we don't know until the conventions are held who the actual we can make no assumptions about what is going to happen. So we could not assume that the uh, president would be the candidate. We had to prepare for two spaces. So the law states that three days after the last convention, we would offer the spaces to the candidate or candidates. So for instance, if the uh, Republican convention was first, we couldn't give the offer the space to the Republican candidate, as long as they were not the sitting president, uh, until after the Democratic convention. We have to offer it, offer it to them at the same time. 
for the pre-elect services, equity for both of the candidates is at the center of everything. So if we had had two candidates, if one candidate asked us a question, even if the other candidate did not ask us that same question, but we provided a response or an an answer or guidance, we would have to make sure that both of them got it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because embedded is a statute is that both candidates will be treated equally. And given that this is a process, you know, that happens every four years, every four to eight years, is there something that you find is a surprise to the transition teams or even to, you know, the career government leaders or appointees about this process? Um, I would say that there's always unique aspects. So what has happened with the statute over time is that the statute has become very specific in deliverables. So the statute, you know, all those things that I described had to happen in May, those are all laid out in statute. Um, The statute requires, you know, is very, very specific about who's on the different councils, when things have to be done, all of those things. And until uh, probably 2010, when a lot of the major changes happened to the statute, you were dependent on the executive order to um, list and make a lot of those things happen. So the statute now drives many of those things. I would say it's a different, it's, it starts out being different, whether you are at the end of a second term uh, presidency or the end of the first term presidency. So anyone who's in the transition business knows that it's a little more challenging um, during a when a first-term president is running for re-election. It's hard to get, uh, you have to find a way to talk about it, that it's all the preparation is beneficial. It's not because, of course, the sitting president that's running, the first-term president is is uh, preparing for to be re-elected and is running for president. And so how do you um, convey, other than it's the law, yeah. Yeah. right? The, the importance and why this is something we should be doing. So, you know, one of the things that we focus on a lot is there are many things that happen, um, whether a first term president is uh, reelected or we have a new administration. You typically have a large turnover of the appointees. Just switch over. That's historical, unhistorical fact. So many of the briefing materials the um, succession planning, that type of stuff is all good preparation in either case. There is going to be inauguration no matter what. There is a million dollars in play for training funds for the current administration, for new appointees, or for a new administration. So we, we focused on, when we talked about the transition, we were preparing for one of two outcomes, but preparation was needed either way. The amount of preparation you're describing and the intricacy and the diplomacy uh, and equity that goes into us is just astonishing. No matter how many times I hear this story, I'm always surprised by it. Um, And that leads into my my next issue here, which when ascertainment occurred at 6 p.m. on November 23rd, when the transition formally was set in motion, 
Two hours later, at 8 p.m., federal agencies and the Biden team were already in conversations. And to me, like, th there's very little in my life that you could say, like, you're going to turn on, a, things are going to be very different in two hours, and I would start in that two hours. The fact that we, the federal government was able to initiate those conversations that quickly is amazing to me, and I'd love to hear more about that. How did you ensure that everything was ready to go once that occurred? Because we're not talking about at noon. It's at 8 p.m. that night in the middle of a chaotic month when it occurred. Right. So I think the first thing is, is it is a real testament to what the career arm of the government does. So we had been preparing for this. And um, so the, the agency transition directors had been preparing uh, for it. We had been, you know, in this case, you know, one of the advantages I would say that we had is, you know, it was the, the outcome was either the existing president is reelected or um, candidate Biden is now going to be president elect Biden. We didn't have the case, which would have been more challenging if, if it was the second term president and we had uncertainty of what, of one of two candidates. So looking at the silver lining, we were preparing for either the current president to be reelected or one candidate that would become the president elect from there. So the other thing that the statute does is when there is uncertainty and until ascertainment is uh, made that the candidate or candidates, if we'd had more than one candidate um, that we were providing pre-election services to would remain in the pre-election mode, right? So they weren't kicked out of pre-election space. Um, they weren't told they had to halt they remained in the pre-election um, posture. So the candidate remained in pre-election posture and the federal government, uh, GSA, and preparing for it, A or B outcome, and the agencies. So what we did during that time was worked with um, the agencies, worked with the transition team to be ready for A or B. And so that was how, when ascertainment was made, we had everything ready to go. And it was a matter of running down and pressing the buttons because we already knew, again, we had um, the outcome was between the existing president or uh, candidate Biden to president-elect Biden. So we, we were working with one transition group and having that ready to go if that had been the outcome. It would have been much more complicated if we were preparing two of them for <laughs> that outcome. But we were very aware of using the time wisely, not only us as uh, the government arm, but also the transition team arm. So Mary, we, Lauren and I just continue to learn on this podcast that there's so much work in federal government that's accomplished behind the scenes. And this is, you know, largely work that the public never hears about, um, which is obviously what we're, you know, hoping to change um, by, by sharing all of this. And the quotes that our team has heard about your success continually refer to your leadership, your diplomacy. Um, we've heard you described as being a straight shooter, a strong mediator, and and also the responsibility that you had, not just to federal agencies, but to the entire country. And so this is such an expansive responsibility. I would love to know what got you interested in leading federal transition efforts, and has anything surprised you about doing this work? So I think I would be remiss if I didn't 
talk about, of course, this was not done. I did not do this by myself. It takes a village. So, you know, I need to acknowledge at GSA, you know, our, our village. I, yes, I led the effort, but I had a director of pre and post-elect, uh, Liz Kane, who ran that arm of it. I had a deputy, uh, Isadora Yaffe, who uh, ran all the front, at, front office aspects. And I had the lead on the inaugural planning um, team, as well as the outgoing team that's still underway, Kathy Geisler, and they had their teams. And they were all, all amazing because I couldn't have done what I did without them. I think we also have the agency transition directors, and then we had the core, what we call the core federal team. And that was comprised of OGE, Shelley Finlinson, NARA, led by Chris Naylor, DOJ, Lee Loftus, he was an invaluable counsel as it related to security clearances and that whole process, OPM, uh, Steve Hickman, and then for the um, intelligence community was Jim Smith. So there was a lot of folks involved in this. So, you know, you don't do it in a, a vacuum. And I think the key to success is um, realizing that, number one, and then getting yourself surrounded and reaching out to the people who know the things that you don't know. And is this something that you raised your hand and said, hey, presidential transition, I really want to do this? Or did this wind up on your desk? Was it luck, timing? Tell, tell us how you got into it. Well, um, as much as I hate to admit it, you know, be careful what you ask for. So <laughs> I did not I did not get to finish the 2016 um, transition. I had been involved previously in different aspects of it, having worked at GSA. So I had played in different roles, but not um, in a lead capacity. So, you know, having to uh, give the reins over to Tim Horn in 2016, when uh, 2020 came around and they were looking around and they were like, well, you know, who do you, who do you think? And I thought, I said, well, you know, I think I have some capacity. I think I would like to do it. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so that's how it happened. And then I went about finding the smartest, uh, brightest, best people in GSA that I could to support me. So when they said, really? You didn't run. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> to pull on this thread, Mary, you've had a long career in public service, not just at GSA, but at the Department of Defense, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and the IRS. And you also served in the Army. Um, so I wanted to know, what is it that drew you to public service and what kept you in uh, over the course of your career? It wasn't, I don't think, ever a conscious decision. Um, I joined the Army um, when I was right out of high school. So mostly it was for an adventure. And it truly was an adventure. <laughs> so I ended up going to uh, Germany and to Panama during that time. I met my husband there. So then I, I married the Army. And then I uh, found my way into federal service that allowed me a portable career. Um, so as he moved, I was able to move. So, you know, I, it, I found that it, it fit me. I found that I liked it. I was able to, I like solving problems. I like doing stuff that other people don't like to do. And it just seemed to fit me. I think it more found me than I found it. 
And we're lucky that it did. Yeah. And just your comment now, Mary, about um, you like to solve problems and do stuff that other people don't like to do brings me back to the really when you raised your hand for um, the, the transition work. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So another question that um, I have is that, you know, presidential elections are inherently political and you worked during a highly charged election definitely on a nonpartisan basis, given your role. So do you have advice for people who are interested in public service, but perhaps they're really turned off by the political debates or the the high levels of polarization that is often associated with government? So one thing I I will add is that um, we also had um, worked with um, the deputy chief of staff's office in the White House, Chris Liddell and his folks. And we could not have done what what we did because Chris Liddell, as you may or may not know, um, ran uh, was in charge of the Romney transition and the planning for the Romney. Had there been a Romney transition, so Chris knew and understood, you know, the things that needed to be done. So he was quietly from within the White House working the things that needed to happen over there. So he was a, a great ally uh, as we worked through the process. I would say the thing about public service is, um, in general, you know, all the folks on the agency transition directors council by um, that are the agency transition directors by design are career people, and they're typically senior folks. So you know, we've been around a while, and I would say most people in the day-to-day running of the agencies and the operations are not overly. Um, impacted by the political aspect. They're very focused on the mission. When you go into agencies, you will find a group of career folks um, that are are there because they believe in the mission. And that's what they're there for. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Last question, Mary. Someday, inevitably, there's going to be a television movie or an HBO special or something about the 2020 transition. And I won't ask you um, you who you've been thinking would play you in this movie, though I think we all imagine ourselves in some way in that kind of story someday. But instead, I want to ask about what is it you would want Americans to learn about in such a TV movie, uh, particularly about about the role that federal civil servants play behind the scenes. Well, and I think one of, again, I think one of the biggest testaments of the transition happened, it happened relatively smoothly. We had some bumps, you know, after ascertainment, there was a couple of issues that could not get resolved. But in general, and the biggest one, as you said, was within hours of ascertainment being made, the Biden team was in the agencies. And the meetings were happened. If you look back at, at the number of meetings that happened, how, um, how, you know, getting a late start, you know, there was more meetings, more folks in the agencies than in any previous transition. So it's amazing um, what happened. And I think also the statute lays out what needs to happen. Um, the folks in the in the agencies have good records of what needs to happen and we make it happen. And, you know, our country is one of the very, very few countries that have a peaceful transition and have this process that happens every four years and a preparation that is 
set in statute to happen smoothly every four years. Well, Mary, thank you so much for being on our show today. I have to tell you, listening to you talk about transition here and in other forums I've heard you is a very sort of comforting bedtime story for me. It's a narrative that I think really underwrites our democracy, as you said, and our ability to have transition from administration to administration. And the fact that it does go so smoothly, despite all of these moving pieces, is just an amazing testament of the work uh, to of all the thousands of civil servants behind the scenes. So thank you so much for your service. And thanks so much for, for being with us today. And thank you again. And I have to say, this was truly an honor and privilege to be able to serve in this role and to serve with the folks that I serve with. So thank you. So Rachel, hearing from Gail and Mary about the transitions that they've led in 2008, 2016, and 2020, it is actually astonishing to me the number of times we have had a transition in this country and it's worked, that we have all <laughs> of these moving pieces. We have this incredibly complex, expensive government that has to stay stable and stay performing in the middle of massive change and not necessarily knowing what that change is going to be. And the fact that we've had peaceful and stable transitions of power since the beginning is amazing, particularly since so much of what they do now was never codified in law or in practice before. Oh, exactly. And the fact that, you know, you could hear the the awe in Gail's voice when she said, wow, you know, all these things, they just said, go forth and do what you need to do. And what she identified is now codified. And that's pretty exciting to think that. So we both told Gail that we were involved or participants in the 2008 transition. And I remember vividly, I worked at the Department of Defense. We were in the middle of two wars at the time. And we knew that a number of appointees, the Secretary of Defense and many others would be leaving. And that it was entirely likely that our strategies for these two wars would change. And the uh, in July of that year, as we started pulling together materials for transition, I just remember having several meetings thinking, how is this going to work? I can't yeah, believe yeah. That we're actually going to make this happen. And it did. It was, it, I mean, I, I, it was certainly by no means flawless, but the ability to responsibly support the number of appointees who were leaving and make sure that they kind of closed all of the things that they could and prepared all the materials that they were able to, while also welcoming in the new beachhead team, as well as the new leaders, it happened. And <laughs> things could have gone better, but with the kind of support that Mary and Gail talked about, these things happen on a regular basis and much of the public has no idea. And how you're describing, you know, you were at DOD very real time, literal life and death things happening. And as Gail described it, you know, this is a very vulnerable point between presidents, which is definitely something I never thought about, you know, until I entered this arena, that that's such a pivotal point in time in between administrations and presumably, you know, those who may want to harm us are aware of that. Something I would always brief to people when I worked at the Department of Defense is that the all of our foreign counterparts, whether allies or adversaries, they're not going to give a new president time for training wheels or time to right. get up to speed. You go, uh, January 20th happens and you're expected to perform instantaneously with new teams who are not used to working together don't know even where the bathroom is. Um, right. and, and what's amazing about that and what makes it work is the civil servants that both talked about. 
And to emphasize, you know, the civil servant part, and, and I loved how you said this to Mary, it was like this comforting bedtime story. Like she was just describing a job that needs to be done. And she actually went so far as to say, this is the stuff that people don't really want to do, but she stepped up. And when she said she raised her hand and her boss said, really? And she's yep. like, yes, um, it's problem solving. It's a lot of, you know, real time figuring things out. And yes, you have the past as history to help guide you. But as they said, every transition has such a different flavor to it. And certainly this last one did. Um, but yeah, it's all of this work behind behind the scenes to help this new ginormous team coming in who it's not like a regular job where, oh, we have a new CEO and they come in and it's all the same people and all the history. Some of them walk in literally to empty desks, empty filing cabinets. There's nothing there and they start from scratch. Empty desks, empty filing cabinets, jobs that they've never done before, and peers yeah. and colleagues who may not have ever worked in government before. And generations of civil servants have managed to help prepare you know, all kinds of new leaders come in in this space. And just to kind of close this out, that was the thing I loved about Mary's final remarks around how you can do almost anything in government. Any kind of job you can imagine is available in the civil service in some form or another. But what makes it different is that you are there supporting and defending the Constitution, often without recognition, often without people being aware that you're role was there, but you have that mission behind you. And what an incredible opportunity. And definitely something that Gail echoed and just really inspires me about government. And I say this every time, but everyone keeps backing me up on this. You can do anything in government. And, you know, when Gail talked about, I had no idea when I started all those years ago that I was going to wind up at the White House working on something like this. I mean, how cool is that? And this, those moments that she talked about being able to be a part of, you're part of the White House team, you are briefing new leaders coming in, you're part of history in so many ways. And you can't, you both can't really prepare for that, but it is very much your job to prepare for exactly those moments. So you're yeah. right. I wondered if you fed your talking points to them around like you can do anything in civil <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Just I pay each here. person. Yep. So we'll see if on the next episode, then our next interviewees echo that too, but I have to imagine they will. Me too. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Profiles in Public Service was created by the Partnership for Public Service. Our researcher and writer is Emma Jones. Our script supervisor is Barry Goldberg. And our executive producer is Jordan Lapierre. Profiles in Public Service is produced by District Productive. I'm Lauren DeYoung-Shulman. And I'm Rachel Klein-Kircher. See you next time.